Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, remembering now that these are the words of the Lord. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylon, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record or a memorandum. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates the governors who are in the province beyond the river, Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence." And this is the reading of the Word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord right now and ask His blessing on our time this morning. Father, as we continue in worship this morning, wanting to exalt the person and work of Christ, we look now to the text in Ezra, and we admit to you that without your Spirit, and his help, we will not be able to make right understanding or application of this text. And so we pray that you would be among us. Be with me as I speak, that it would not be my words, but yours that are heard, and that the people that hear would understand and apply and be more conformed to the image of Christ. It is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, I've mentioned before that our family is reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy together a few evenings every week, and we are currently in the middle of book three, that's The Return of the King, in which one of the principal characters, Aragorn, heir of Isildur and the rightful inheritor of the throne of Gondor, has, without any explanation, gone off on a perilous, and most people think foolish, mission down a road called the Paths of the Dead. And this happened right at the moment when his leadership and strength seemed to be needed more than ever. His kingdom is left, therefore, very understaffed, awaiting the arrival of the riders of Rohan, the only significant nearby allies. Yet even with reinforcements like these, the forces of good are no match for the colossal army of orcs 
marching and encamping across the fields of the Pelennor with great engines of war, torturing and murdering every human they pass on the way. Aomir, captain of the riders of Rohan, summarizes the thoughts of all who are destined for the rather predictable defeat ahead with these words. The paths of the dead, he muttered to himself. The paths of the dead, what does all of this mean? They've all left me now. They have all gone to some doom. Gandalf and Pippin to war in the east, Sam and Frodo to Mordor, and now Aragorn to the paths of the dead. My turn will come soon enough, I suppose, and he means to be among the dead. Have you ever felt abandoned by God to seemingly impossible circumstances? Of course, you know his promise from Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But have you ever been in a season of loneliness and isolation, endeavoring to plot away at the task that is right in front of you, striving for contentment and joy, and you're honestly wrestling with a feeling that God has forgotten you and you despair. Like Aomir, you wonder where the king has gone and when will be his return. This morning's text was meant to steal the resolve of Ezra's readers, wondering similar things. We're in for it now. We've messed up so many times. There is no conceivable way God could get us out of this mess. Have you felt similarly? Lord, I stepped out in faith to work with you, to come, to plant, to grow, to be like Christ. Why then have I been so very tried? Where are you, Lord? We are a people... Beloved, who await the final return of the king. And he will come. He also can and does frequently come to our aid in this life in very profound ways. That's the exile's testimony of their God from this morning's text. If you'll look with me at the first several verses from chapter 6, I'll give a quick summary to catch us up of where we are. It's been about 20-ish years since Persian King Cyrus wrote his initial decree of release, return, and rebuild. From that time, there's been no additional help from him or any other monarch from Persia. There have been two since. Israel safely returned to Judea, got to work on the temple, were bullied into stopping for 15 years, were disciplined by various means, and now they're back at work with the reward of more testing. The exiles have turned again in obedience to Yahweh God, so the locals have taken their opposition to the next level, writing King Darius to somehow get an order of restraint on that obedience. Zerubbabel and company are probably wondering right about now, and this is our reward for obedience? Where is our God and King now? Ezra and his readers, approximately 50 years after this, are in strikingly similar circumstances after an exchange with King Artaxerxes. Now would be a great time for our God and King to show up and help us too. Well, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, we're told that Darius, having received Tatanai's letter made a decree, that's the same word used in chapter 1, where Cyrus made a decree of release, that Darius made a decree for this particular proclamation of Cyrus to be found, to be located. His officials, you see in verse 1, began to search in Babylon where the temple artifacts were originally taken and held and also where royal records were typically kept. But the decree wasn't found there. Instead, evidence of it turns up in Ekbatana, one of the three royal cities in the Persian Empire, with the words, a record in your ESV, or perhaps a memorandum from your LSV written on it. This is probably not the exact document that Cyrus wrote. It's not the exact proclamation, 
maybe a royal declaration such as a poster sent out by the king's writers to announce the decision. Those would have been something official that would have been carried around and everybody in the communities would have seen and known, thus says the king, he's spoken in this way. This was more likely some royal meeting minutes kept for the historical annals. It's important to keep in mind that this search would have taken months to accomplish. Don't forget what was written in chapter 5, verse 5, where it is said, The eye of Israel's God was on the elders, and their adversaries did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Remember, beloved, God ordains the ends and the means. He is diligent to test his people while at the same time always giving them the additional grace to pass the test. Brothers and sisters, no matter how difficult the season of testing you are in right now, God has already provided the grace to remain faithful to him at the task that is right in front of you. Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians 10 by saying, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know that an experienced coach almost always knows more about their player's strengths and limitations than that player does. That person's body may ache during the training, his mind screaming for a break, for some water and some relief. And the coach just keeps on pushing, commanding, encouraging, challenging, getting down next to the hurting athlete in order to pick him up and urge him on. This whole time, Mama is over on the sidelines getting nervous about the health and well-being of her little boy. Western Christians, unfortunately, are a lot like Mama in that story. When they see others in the household of God in a fiery trial, the absence of comfort shouts God's disfavor. But beloved, God in the scriptures never prioritizes comfort. Show me one Bible story where God put the comfort of any of his characters as the supreme goal and end of all of his dealings with them. You won't find one. But you will find this. That we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And yet without sin. Jesus knows what it is to be tested. He knows how hard to push you with out being the least bit cruel in order to produce a faith in you that is worth more than gold. In other words, we serve a calculated God, not a capricious God. He knew what these exiles could handle and had already provided the grace to see them to the finish line. And he knows you who are in Christ better than you could ever know yourself. And the grace... For your current trial just came out of the oven. Verses 3 through 5 detail what the memorandum contained. There was indeed a decree for the return and the rebuilding of the temple by Cyrus. And it was made in the first year of his reign. The work was to be done in the exact location the exiles were working. To the exact dimensions that they were in fact making it. With the exact kind of materials that they were building with, it's the same word used in chapter 6, great stones, you see there in verse 4. Same one that Tatanai described back in chapter 5, verse 8. And the temple that they were building was to be stocked with the exact treasures that were restored to the Jews by Cyrus. Notice the addition of each to its place. In verse 5, there's a hint here that there were likely some Jewish wise men helping to direct the work from the royal court. You may remember that in the book of Daniel, Daniel serves under a number of different kings, one of which 
is King Darius. Also, look what was added in verse 4. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. That's a big win. More on this in just a minute. The letter was received, search was made, and what did King Darius find? He found exactly what the exiles testified he would find. Now, I could pause here for a minute and talk about how the exiles were people of their word, so we should be people of our words. You know, let your yes be yes, your no be no, Jesus teaches. But this text is not about the exiles and their actions. It's not about their enemies and the next attempt of the adversaries of God in this game of the battle of wits. Today's text isn't even about King Darius and what role he plays in the unfolding narrative. Today's text is about the sovereign power of the King of Kings who controls the hearts of rulers and authorities, who alone commands with irresistible power, let my people go that they may serve me. It's about that God. And that in spite of his people's sins, he does not change his mind. Think about the exiles for a minute. They're back at Jerusalem. They're working on the temple. They're waiting for a reply from Darius. Did anybody in those months of waiting float the idea that God is doing this to them to discipline them? You remember those 15 years that we were not doing anything, that we were in disobedience? You think he's going to change his mind and drop the hammer on us? You think we're going to get punished in this moment? What if they can't find the decree that Cyrus made? They'll just make up another one that makes us look like liars. God probably wouldn't stop them. Why would he? Serves us right for being knuckleheads. Church, did the Lord abandon his people? No. The king found exactly what was reported by the exiles, which is exactly what God purposed years before. No, they couldn't find the original document. He went to one of his three royal cities, not Babylon, where they anticipated it found, but they found a document recording identically with some really nice additions What God had commanded through Cyrus years before. The Lord and his plan did not change. Unfortunately, Christians today don't act this way. We don't act like we have a God who won't give up on us. We think things like, it's over. I've screwed up for the last time. He's done with me this time. Don't blame him. I wouldn't tolerate me either. That's why I'm dealing with this hardship. It's because God has changed his mind and he's given up on me. Now, beloved, at the end of the day, that is just pride. That's all that is. It's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. When we give in to feelings like these, has God changed? Or are we the ones that are changing? When's the last time you considered the doctrine of the immutability, that is the unchangeableness of our sovereign God. Wayne Grudem defines God's immutability as God's being unchanging in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes, and in all of his promises. So the king feels absent, does he? If he doesn't show up, Is the whole plan ruined? No. Listen to the writer of Psalm 102. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be passed on. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. James reveals to us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no change. God told Malachi, 
I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, salvation. You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you're not consumed. It's the opposite of what we think. God's going to get mad at me. He's going to get fed up with me. He's going to be done with me. He's going to kick me out the door. He says, no, actually, it's the opposite. The reason I haven't kicked you out the door is because I've not changed. Did what was written in that decree from Cyrus change? Other than some really nice additions, not a bit. Our God, his decrees and his purposes always stand firm. After their fears and anxieties got the best of the exiles, after they gave up on the work, after they spent years of working on their own properties, ignoring the work that God gave them to do, after they had been rebuked by the prophets and aided in the work by those sent to correct them, nothing in the character or plan of the Lord was altered in any way. And brothers, this has tremendous implications for us as his children today. Because of God's immutability, number one, you can have immovable confidence in God. Because of God's immutability, you can have immovable confidence in God. When we feel like God is distant, it is we who have moved, not God. Dutch theologian Herman Bovink said, The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being who God is and becoming who we are marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is a changeable, constantly striving, seeking rest, seeking satisfaction, finding ultimately that rest in God, in Him alone, for only He is pure being and not becoming. Hence, Bavink concludes, in Scripture, that's why God is called the rock. He doesn't change. How can each of you today find and maintain hope that in spite of your failures, God's plan will never fail? Think about your past for just a minute. How many times have you failed God? Many. I know I have. And yet here we are, and God is saying, I asked you to build the kingdom. Plan hasn't changed. Let's go, guys. Let's go. He's not capricious. He's never one time flown off the handle at some person for their sin. Not once. Many of you in here have seen perhaps fathers or mothers go uncontrollably Get uncontrollably angry. God's never done that. The fact that we change means, by the way, that he not only intends to, but promises that we will be conformed to his image. All of your failures and all of your shifting away from God can be thought from a positive perspective, because if I can go that way, God can change me and bring me this way. And if he doesn't change, he will fulfill what he had promised to make us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now that's a hopeful thought. Number two, the immutability of God means that at no time will God's promises ever fail us. So God seems to be missing in action, does he? Have the promises He left us, been emptied of their value. Listen to what Peter says in his second epistle. His, that is God's, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything came from his divine power, that unchangeable being who he is. All things that pertain to life and godliness, he gave us. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which, by which, by that divine power, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power, which is unchangeable, it will never be used against you for evil, but only for good. And by that divine power, he has granted you these promises, allowing you to enter his presence and commune with him. Even though we change and move and fail and fall short of his glory, never once has one of his promises failed us. If you've ever been to my house, my and Tammy's house, it would be hard on your first visit to miss the two water towers to the left as you come up our driveway. They both hold hundreds of thousands of gallons of water and supply all the houses and businesses on the west side of Clinton with a vital utility. Tammy and I have driven by them so many times, we've come to not even notice them anymore. We just ignore them. A few months back, the Anderson County Water Authority folks came by and they pressure washed one of the towers and it looks nice. And we started noticing it again for a little while, but we're back not to paying them any attention again. We just drive right by them to get to the house. Question, could our awareness of those towers or our inattention to their function in any way affect the supply of water that they bring to all of Marlowe? No. Every day, they keep pumping out life's second most important material to everyone to the west of Clinton City. In the same way, church, no seasons of drought in the Christian life have emptied God's promises of the stores of life that they bring from the hands of the unchangeable God. Lastly, number three, the immutability of God is an immovable rock of assurance to his children. Imagine for a moment that our God could change even in a small way. Let's say that he could get impatient with us, decide to scrap the whole kingdom of Christ plan and just send us all to hell. What a terrifying thought. I'm sure that many of you have felt at times the slander of the enemy when he argues that sin right there was the last straw. That's it. God's over it. He's done with you. You never give up. You're not even a Christian. You keep going back to it like a dog to its vomit, right? That's what Proverbs says. You're the dog. The teaching ministry group, I'll be honest, with uh, Tim Conway, Paul Washer, Charles Leiter, uh, a number of men who have blessed me with their teaching... <laughs> receive daily emails from individuals all across America dealing with this exact issue. The overwhelming number of questions they get are basically asking whether or not a person has committed the unpardonable sin. There is such a thing as the unpardonable sin, and most people don't understand it. But almost all of these people are basically asking the question that I'm asking at this application point, have I finally sinned to the point where God's given up on me? Let me tell you a golden truth, beloved. Whenever the return of our king is, whenever he comes back, he will come back the same king that he ever was. He will come back to put the period on this great earth saga and begin the next story, the one that he writes that will have no end. But know this, when he returns, none of his children will be forgotten or left unfinished. None of them. Be sure of this, brethren, Paul says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And why not? Because our God does not change. Before we move on, I want to note something that I've spoken about at length over the last several weeks. We've talked a lot about our feelings. That our emotions are often the most powerful determiner of what is reality to us. The Christian knows, though, the good Christian, the mature Christian... The one who's been trained in righteousness knows, however, that it is the Lord and his word that stands true. And how we feel about that word doesn't change anything. 
Might I encourage you with something that I've spoken the last several weeks? In light of the fact that in Christ, God is for you and that that will never change, repent of how you feel about your circumstances and start acting as God would have you to act in them. Think how that might have changed the morale if one exile in this group, if one exile had been stalwartly confident of God's faithfulness to his people. I mentioned this quote from Eugene Peterson in the Christ the King men's channel over this last week. It's been ringing in my ears during my times of meditation. Eugene Peterson says, We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, that there's no point in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. God commands that we act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. So much truth in that statement. Peterson goes on to talk about how our worship should be an act that develops feelings for God, not our feelings for God expressed in an act of worship. That's what worship is. It's conforming our minds to Christ, being transformed by the renewal of the mind in our praises to God. Brothers and sisters, stop asking God to change the world to fix your feelings. Live and act in obedience today like he rules the nations today. And he always will because he never changes. Well, let's continue with the time that we have remaining, looking at the next several verses. I want to look at verses 6 through 10 next. Most of our lives will likely be spent in seasons where we must trust the unseen and unchanging God. This is how God grows faithfulness in us while we await the final return of our bridegroom from heaven. But have you ever been in one of those seasons of the Christian life where God shows up and acts on your behalf with great power and glory? Consider the next several verses. After months of searching, the document that Darius ordered to be found was, he now sees that God's people do have permission to build where, how, and with what they are building. And the king returns... His answer, by gifting the exiles with two things. The first thing that he gives them is protection. In verses 6 and 7, King Darius commands Tatanai, Shethar, Bozani, and company to knock off the intimidation tactics and let the Jews get down to business. After months of nonstop slander and threats, an immediate halt, stop, no more, cease and desist, don't you lay a finger on these folks... Or mess with them in any other way. As a member of the new exodus, God grants Zerubbabel and friends the same protection here that he granted to the members of the first exodus recorded in Psalm 105. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he, that is God, Allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. There's a priceless moment in the third book of the Lord of the Rings during the siege of Gondor when the front gate is broken down and the king of the Nazgul becomes the very first enemy of men to set foot inside the great walls of the city. But he is immediately met by another rider, sitting alone on top of his horse. In a commanding voice, Gandalf shouts, You cannot enter here. The huge shadow halted. He continues, Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back, fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. Those of you who know Gandalf know he wasn't calling bluff. There's some serious power behind those words. And God came to his people's aid in power through Darius' command in order to protect his own. 
The second thing that God gives them is provisions. I briefly touched on this earlier. Verse 8 is the key verse here. In the original decree from Cyrus back in chapter 1, there was no mention of compensation from the royal revenue. Somewhere between the original writing and the meeting minutes that Cyrus recorded for his officials later, they added a directive that his officials should give from the treasuries of Persia the funds to help get this work done. I wonder where the money was coming from before that, when the exiles were having to be obedient and give of their own resources to God's task. They volunteered their time. The plunder that they took from the Persian neighbors back in chapter 1, verse 4, I'm sure was being used to compensate the workers. Suffice it to say, they were not only working with the external pressures from the Samaritans and also internal pressures from their own flesh, but they had a limited pocketbook. To quote every 90s game show host after Darius' letter is received, but wait, there's more. In addition to the added benefit of royal stipend for the house of God, in verses 9 to 10, Darius adds his own little grace gift. He commands the provision of sacrificial animals and ingredients for making of the sacred foods to come day by day to the local people. This in order that the worship due to God can go on without interruption, and he adds that they might say some prayers for him and his kids. Now, what can we take as food for our souls here, beloved? Just this. William Cowper once captured in song a precious truth. The clouds that ye so much dread are also rich with mercy. It is a truth in the Christian life that God's greatest deliverances often come through the schemes of our enemies. The whole plan of the Samaritans was to get Darius to write back with a cease and desist order for the exiles. But see, what had happened was the order was handed instead to Israel's enemies who now must live with the fact that they ran the most successful church-building fundraiser in the history of the world. Imagine this. The exiles received this letter from the hand of their adversaries. We'll read this again in in next week um, in verse 13. The exiles received this letter from the hand of their adversaries. Zerubbabel slowly sets down his hammer and chisel. He walks over to the motivational thermometer board that they had going. He takes out his red Sharpie marker and he asks, how much did the king say we could have? The biblical theological theme of wicked people falling into the pit they dug is everywhere in the Bible. And you also sang about it this morning when we sang, Rise Up, O Lord. Adam and Eve and the serpent, Joseph against his brothers, Israel in opposition to Pharaoh, Samson and the Philistines, David versus Saul, Elijah against Ahab, the exiles and the Samaritans, and of course, Jesus against Satan, Pharisees, Romans, Gentiles, etc. Here's the issue, beloved. Our God is immutable. He does not change. He still loves to deliver his people through the plans of their enemies. And he will still do that in our time too because he does not change. Pastor Jim Hamilton said, There is no setback. No failure, no tragedy, no disappointment, and no defeat that God cannot turn around to bless you. I mentioned back in the summer that because of the early leak of the decision that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was an unprecedented move in Supreme Court history, those documents are never leaked. But because this leak, which was intended to create waves of peaceful protests, intimidation and vandalism and the like, 
What actually ended up happening is the the resolve of the conservative justices was so solidified that no amount of intimidation or opposition could get them to change their mind. They were set at that point on overturning Roe. And so the enemies of God fell into the pit that they dug. Still happens today. So our current governmental regime has ruined our economy, have they? You're having trouble affording gas and the results of inflation. You can't move to Anderson County because of housing costs and interest rates. You're trapped in a 1970s Jimmy Carter economy on steroids. And all because of the enemies of God. Let me ask you this, church. How can God not use that to bless us? Has he run out of ideas? Is he so impotent that his power can't and won't break through and help us in answer to our prayers? In Numbers 11, the people of Israel demand that God give them meat. They're angry at Moses, who is feeling pressure. They're threatening to kill him again. Poor guy. And he tells God that there's not enough grocery stores around to get the job done. God's words in verse 23 are a strong rebuke to his unbelief. The Lord says, does my arm look shorter to you? Now, we know that God doesn't have an arm. But he's communicating to Moses in a way he can understand. Is there such a thing as divine osteoporosis? Bones are getting shorter. I'm a little weak there. Can't really help now, Moses. That one's out of my hands. <coughs> Beloved, I'm not an economist, and I have no bright ideas about how God can change our situation right now. But we have got to start praying like a people who trust their unchanging God that he will deliver us. As Christians who desire to maximize the glory of God, we ought to be the most durable and content in our trials because we know that God will use them for our good. We should start thinking like Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now don't hear me peddling a prosperity light gospel. That's not the issue. The issue is that we believe in the, ref- the final return of our king, but we also believe that he can come through for us now should he choose to, just like he did for the exiles. Not only did he give them provision, not only did he give them protection, but here at the end, he threatens punishment. Let's look at the king's concluding remarks in verse 11 and 12. I want to look first at verse 12. Darius makes a decree that the response letter he was sending to the exiles be not altered in any way. This would not only include keeping an eraser away from the document, but that no one prevent its enforcement in any way. To summarize by borrowing a line from the first Cars movie... What did King Darius say about messing with the decree? To not to. (laughs) And if they refuse to obey or comply? Well, there are different ways of interpreting verse 11. The New American Standard, Legacy, ESV, and Christian Standard Bible all choose the term impalement on a framing stud. The King James Version has the offender being hung from the wood. And the Young's literal has, coincidentally, the most literal rendering. And that is that the violator be smitten on the wood. That's actually what the Hebrew means. It means that he is smitten on the wood. All translations agree, by the way, that the person's house is forever after to be used for developing compost. Darius concludes with a pagan prayer that any usurpers of this decree be overthrown 
and that this commandment is to get done pronto. But in verse 11, I want to focus in on this for just a minute. Whichever translation you have, it is impossible to miss the picture of a man who is an enemy of the state, and in this case, an enemy of God, being raised up on a pole, suspended on a piece of wood, publicly punished, his body is pierced on the wood, he's hanging on the wood, he is scourged on the wood. It's impossible to miss this calling to our mind, the work of the Lord Jesus on behalf of sinners. Beloved, what happens when you mess with the king? What happens when you transgress his inspired written word, break his commandments, attempt to destroy his temple, spurn his rule, all in an effort to usurp him? You get what Jesus got. That's right. What happened to Christ on the cross was the just and righteous punishment from God for people who have opposed his rule. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is Paul saying to us here? He is saying just this, that we were at one time the Samaritans. We were at one time opposing the building of God's temple and his kingdom. We were the offenders. We were the adversaries. We were the ones with hard and stony hearts. And the punishment for breaking God's command, here given in microcosm through Darius, to be hung from a tree was not applied to us, but was applied to the sin bearer, Jesus Christ. Christian, this is why you, though guilty of treason, can go free in the day of judgment, because Jesus paid it all. What about those of you who are sitting here today who have not closed with Christ? I mean by that, that you have never admitted to God that you are guilty before him. That you deserve the punishment of his wrath. That having confessed that to him, you have rejected any attempts of your own to try and get on God's good side again. You have simply believed that the punishment that you deserved to be hung on that wood, Christ did. He paid the price. Not for some sin, but for your sin. It was sufficient. That is repentance and belief. And today is the day of salvation, lost one. Why wait one more minute to get right with Christ? If you do not, and your end comes soon, the punishment described here in Ezra 6 verse 11 will seem like a fairy tale compared to the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the unquenchable fires of hell for all eternity to you. Did you notice that Darius commanded the wood for the judgment to be taken out of the person's own house? There's a kind of poetic justice intended here. If you refuse to repent of your sins and bow the knee to Christ, no longer hindering the building of his kingdom, but to continue to oppose the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom that you are building and the treasures you are amassing, and the comfort in this world that you are desperate to maintain forever and all eternity will be the means by which God will justly damn your soul forever. So lost one today, repent and believe. For those of you who are in Christ, let us not forget our unchanging God. In Revelation chapter 20, you hear of the book of life in which are written the names of those who belong to Jesus by the grace of God through the faith they have been given from God. We learn there in verse 15 that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
But what if I could actually do something that could get my name taken out of that book? Well, you could flip back several chapters in Revelation to chapter 13, verse 8, where it tells us that that book was written before the foundation of the world with a pen like diamond. Nothing is ever going to be altered because our God does not change. This, beloved, is why Christians can endure any trial. We know that our King will deliver us. He always has and He always will. He may do it through great deliverances in this life, and we should be praying in faith for those while waiting in eager expectation for the return of the King. Even if we get no relief in this life, beloved, He will come. And His appearing to us will cause no fear because He made us promises that He will surely keep. He will tread down all of our foes and put even death to death forever. All the defeats we experience in this life, He will turn into routes for His glory. I'll conclude with one more snippet from The Return of the King, which illustrates this point just beautifully. Aragorn had gone off to the paths of the dead, and many went off to fight in the fields outside of Gondor, and many fell and many died. But just in the nick of time came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elisar, Isildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor, and the mirth of the Rohirrim was a torrent of laughter and flashing of swords, and the joy and wonder of Gondor was a music of trumpets and the ringing of bells. But the hosts of Mordor were seized with bewilderment, and a great wizardry, it seemed to them that their own ships should be filled with their foes. And a black dread fell on all of them, knowing that the tides of fate had turned against them and their doom was at hand. Oh, may it be in our days and we look for the final day when certainly Christ will come and the great story will come to a glorious end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great deliverances in this life. We do pray in the name of Christ Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that the trials that we are suffering throughout this room, that the adversaries around us, that the number of plots that thicken against your church would be the pits that our enemies fall into themselves, would become routes, great routes for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. And that in the meantime, we would be content knowing that in Christ our names are written in the book of life and they can never be removed because they were written with the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.